You are listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth on sqpn.com. The battle for Middle-Earth is about to begin. Where do you travel to find Middle-Earth? How can you fight the shadows of Angmar? Created the dwarves. I thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. Why are elves immortal? You will linger on in darkness and in doubt. It's nightfall in winter that comes without a star. What is the ultimate evil of Sauron? Join me on a quest for answers through the books, the movies, and the games that tell us the legendary adventures of hobbits, dwarves, men, and elves in Tolkien's Middle-earth. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Secrets of Middle-earth. And uh, we are here in Little Delving, a tiny little hobbit town in the western part of the Shire. On a starry night, I'm surrounded by a few hobbit houses on the main square of this tiny little village and uh, some purple flowers in the gardens here on my left. And a few hobbits are still up and walking around and chatting with each other. And the town itself is uh, surrounded by rocks and by lots of water. There are two big waterfalls. I'm crossing a small wooden bridge here, and if I turn to my left, there's a waterfall, and on my right, there's an even bigger waterfall, and the water itself ends up in a small stream that flows through this tiny village. It's a beautiful starry night. The weather is uh, is calm. There's not a cloud in the sky, just beautiful twinkling stars. It's a little delving, just a tiny little village surrounded by rocky cliffs. And it's not far from uh, today's destination, which is a much bigger town, Mickle Delving. And it, it's uh, much further to the uh, southwest of where I am now. And as you can tell, there's another waterfall streaming down in the valley below and if I look ahead I can see that the sky is already turning slightly red so dawn might be upon us I'm riding my horse and uh, on the left just beautiful hills and here's a lone cow walking around oh wait there's the hobbit that's the owner probably and these cows have just been walking around here and they're probably ready to get milked and uh, we've arrived in Mickle Delving and uh, Mickle Delving is a, is a, is a larger town um, it's the capital of the Shire and uh, here on my left is uh, a really nice building most of these hobbit holes are, are usually just one story and then sometimes they've the hobbits have dug like tunnels in in the in, in the in the ground, and so most of the 
hobbit houses are not very tall, but this this particular building is very tall. It has a tower, almost looks like a watchtower. Um, I can see some light on the inside, and uh, this is probably one of their main. Uh, can you call it the city hall? Uh, it's definitely one of the more important buildings of the Shire, and uh, not far from there is a big statue. I think it's a wooden statue. It doesn't look like rock. Although I could be mistaken. It's very dark. And, uh, well, I think it's a statue of a, of a bounder and uh, another hobbit preparing some food because he has a casserole on a fire and, uh, well, he's preparing, I don't know, second breakfast perhaps? <laughs> or eleven seas? Who knows? Here's another little square with uh, a crafting hall and some stores closed tonight. And I'm heading to uh, my good friends, Dave and Laura, because I'm going to leave you with them. They have an appointment with a fellow called Pungo. And uh, Pungo is, uh, I think it's, it's a hobbit as well. And uh, he is a warden. And um, he has agreed to meet Laura and Dave to talk about three very interesting hobbits that uh, you guys are going to meet in uh, in this inn and this is so this is one of the inns of uh, of the shire we've already visited the green dragon last time but this one is called the bird and baby inn and i'm currently at the at the entrance of the inn uh, and there's a green sign showing a red bird carrying a, a huge baby, an oversized baby. Um, and I don't know exactly what the meaning is of that and why this inn is called the Bird and Baby, but I'm sure that uh, uh, Pungo has some inside information about that. Because Pungo is not just a hobbit in Middle-earth, he also has uh, a real-life identity in uh, the regular world. And in, uh, in real life, Pungo is a professor. I will say no more. I'm going to leave you with uh, Dave and Laura. They are going to tell you everything about these, these other three hobbits, Jack Lewisdown, Carla Williams, and Owen Farfield, that are uh, having a meeting, some kind of a literary club almost, here in this inn in... Uh, in the Shire in Mickledelving. So have fun with Dave and Laura. I'm on my way to another destination. We'll meet again next time on The Secrets of Middle-Earth. So we're sitting here with uh, Pungo, and he, um, some of you may know him from the Casual Stroll to Mortar podcast and the blog. Um, he's written for Casual Stroll to Mortar on Tolkien's lore and specifically about the Inklings. So Pungo, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in real life? Sure. I am a professor at uh, a small college in uh, Alabama. And I teach humanities. I have a lot of different uh, subjects that I teach, actually. And um, I do courses in history and literature and religion. 
Uh, this semester uh, coming up uh, in the spring, I'll actually be teaching a seminar on J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis with one of my colleagues. I'm very excited to do that, of course. And so the Inklings will be a, a frequent topic of discussion, I'm sure, in that class. At, at the casual stroll to Mordor, um, I'm jokingly referred to as the other Tolkien professor <laughs> <laughs> to distinguish me from Corey Olson, who's much more versed in Tolkien than I am. Uh, Tolkien is more of a, a labor of love for me than an than a academic specialty, but I, I do enjoy talking about and reading Tolkien and uh, teaching it when I have a chance. So what can you tell us about the, uh, the hobbits that we see here in the, in the back room in the Bird and Baby? So we, we've got Jack Lewiston, um, who's talking to Carla Williams, and then Owen Farfield is sitting reading a book at a table. These three hobbits are all uh, the in-game representations of uh, real-life uh, people who were friends of Tolkien. Uh, we're all living in Oxford at the same time that he did, and they met together uh, frequently a couple times a week uh, during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, the three that you see here uh, are the representations of Owen Barfield. On the, uh, he's the one sitting at the uh, table reading the book. And then Carlo Williams is actually Charles Williams. Uh, Jack Lewis down is uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, you might wonder where they got the name Jack for him, but that's actually what his uh, friends called him. His real name was Clive Staples Lewis, and he preferred Jack, so asked everybody, all of his friends to call him that. So all of these guys were uh, writers, and with Tolkien and several other people, for example, uh, C.S. Lewis's brother, Warney Lewis, uh, they formed um, an informal group of uh, writers called the Inklings, and they met uh, on Tuesday mornings every week uh, in Oxford at a pub called the Eagle and Child. And the uh, Eagle and Child was nicknamed by the locals uh, the Bird and Baby. Uh, of course, that's where they get the name for uh, mm -hmm. the inn in Mickledelving. And they called it that because the sign out front just like in the game, has a picture of uh, a bird carrying a baby in a, uh, a cloth sort of diaper-looking thing. That's actually derived from, um, a Rome, from Roman mythology. And so they met there every week, and they uh, would bring in manuscripts, things that they were working on, uh, poems, stories, chapters of novels that they were writing at the time, and they would read them to each other. So... Uh, it was there in the bird and baby or the, the eagle and child that um, these uh, works of literature, for example, chapters of The Hobbit, chapters of The Lord of the Rings, chapters of the, the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, were sort of revealed to other people from, for the first time. And of course, you know, for those of us who love Tolkien and, and the other writers, um, you know, really be wonderful to have been a, a fly on the wall <laughs> in, in the Eagle and Child during oh, some yeah. of those meetings. And then they also met um, in C.S. Lewis's apartment, uh, usually on Thursday nights. And uh, Lewis was sort of the heart and soul of the Inklings. He was the one who started it. And there were members who joined and left over the years. Uh, Charles Williams, for example, didn't actually 
start meeting with them until he moved to Oxford around 1940 during the war. And so they had been meeting for several years before he showed up. But you know, members came and went, but Lewis was the one who really held it all together for, for all those years. And uh, he would host the group in his apartment. Uh, he had rooms at Maudlin College in Oxford where he was a, a lecturer. And uh, they would do the same sorts of things there, read uh, manuscripts to each other and uh, sometimes share meals. So those meetings would sometimes last long into the evening or well past midnight even. And again, it would have been really wonderful just to be able to sit there and listen to some of those conversations. I'm sure oh, yeah. there were a lot of great thoughts that never got into print uh, when some of those minds met. Yeah, it's too bad nobody uh, recorded some of those meetings or, or <laughs> took notes at the meetings. That's well, right, um, uh, and we don't even know for sure when the group got started. There's uh, a first really solid mention of it comes in the correspondence of one of the writers, and it was uh, in the late 30s, but there are some uh, indications in the writings of some of the other members that it may have started as early as 1933, so we don't know, you know, for... They could have gone for five or six years and had nothing written down about it. And it's uh, really tantalizing to think about, you know, all the kinds of conversations that might have happened or some of the poems that were read that we might think were great, but they might not have and never found it into print uh, as a consequence. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. so I think most people know who C.S. Lewis is, but can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, uh, Charles Williams and Owen Barfield? Yeah, Owen Barfield was an editor for uh, Oxford University Press, of course, a major academic publisher, and he spent uh, many years with them. And so a lot of very important uh, academic books you know, came through his hands before they were published, and he had an influence on their final form. But he was also an author himself, and um, he had written a book in the 20s called uh, Poetic Diction, and he wrote a lot about, uh, you know, the form of writing, and uh, one very important part of that book was uh, his discussion of mythology. And he was a student of language and had studied how ancient cultures uh, used their language, and even though they used a lot of words that we use today, words like of tree or river, or rock, um, you know, to ancient people, the meaning of those words was much more complex than they are to us today. And we think of a tree and we say, okay, there's this, you know, big piece of wood out in my backyard. That's a tree and it has leaves and bark and so on. But to an ancient uh, person from one of these cultures that had a rich mythological tradition, a tree would be much more than just that, uh, you know, plant. It would have a spiritual mm -hmm. component to it, too. And it would be an important part of how they viewed the world in terms of um, you know, spiritual forces um, that were at work in the world. And so he said that uh, when people told stories, when they told myths uh, in ancient times, they were actually uh, using these words in such a way that uh, we have to sort of reorient our thinking uh, in order to understand them, that uh, they had a lot of metaphorical meanings to them as well. And so when, uh, when they talked about trees, for example, 
they wouldn't make a distinction. The ancient people would not make a distinction between the tree in your backyard and uh, supernatural forces working. And so when uh, what Barfield's argument was is that when these people are telling myths about the gods, for example, causing things to happen, like if, um, if there's an earthquake or something, they say the gods caused the earthquake or the gods come and have an interaction with human beings, that they're actually, it's not just superstition like we would think of today. They're actually telling us something true about reality and about how the world works because in their minds, there's no difference between the gods doing those things and these natural objects that we all accept. And that idea had a big influence on Tolkien. Um, he wrote later that uh, he would be lecturing, for example, on medieval literature, which was his specialty, of course, and he would be about to say something that um, Barfield had contradicted, and he would stop himself in the middle of the lecture and say, no, I can't say that because I understand what Barfield was saying now about mythology and how mm -hmm. it really does have a much fuller meaning to us, or it ought to have a much fuller meaning to us. And so he would say, you know, half a dozen times in the course of a lecture, he'd stop himself on the verge of saying something that was too modern, for example, instead of trying to get inside the minds of uh, these ancient uh, people who uh, wrote these myths. So that's one example of how the members of the Inklings um, had an influence on Tolkien. Um, Charles Williams was an author who wrote a number of uh, novels in the 30s and 40s that uh, Tolkien actually was not a big fan of. C.S. Lewis liked them a great deal, uh, but Tolkien found it difficult to sort of um, appreciate some of the, the allegory and other kinds of things that Williams put into his work. Williams was a big fan of uh, Arthurian legends, his stories about the Holy Grail and things like that. And some of his novels actually uh, are set in modern Britain, but they... Uh, incorporate certain ideas about the Grail legends, you know, like modern people in the 1930s, you know, uh, finding clues that might lead them to the Holy Grail and things of that sort. Of course, one of the traditions of mythology about the Grail is that um, Joseph of Arimathea, the, the man who supposedly uh, caught the blood of Christ at the crucifixion in the Holy Grail, uh, later traveled to England and established you know, his descendants there, kept the grail. And so there's this tradition that the grail is in England somewhere. And uh, Williams kind of explored that, um, speculated about those kinds of things uh, in some of his novels. And uh, Tolkien, as I said, wasn't uh, as appreciative of some of the things that he wrote, um, but still they had a cordial relationship and they spent a lot of time together. And uh, you know, Williams gave uh, Tolkien uh, feedback on his writing, just like uh, the other members of the Inklings did. And so, uh, collectively, these guys uh, probably did have an influence on uh, certainly some passages in Tolkien's writing, uh, maybe even uh, uh, gave him some critical encouragement uh, at certain mm -hmm. points when he w wasn't quite motivated to finish some of these stories that we all love today. So we have, uh, in that sense, maybe a lot to thank the Inklings for. Yeah, yeah, because it t it took Tolkien what was it about like seventeen years or something to write the Lord of the Rings, and I know there were some long pauses 
um, in be you know, from when he started to when he finished it, I think he started it right after he published The Hobbit in about 37, I think, and didn't finish it until the late 40s, and then it wasn't published till the 50s. So, um, so did Tolkien actually read The Lord of the Rings then um, to the Inklings? He did read portions of it, and uh, later on, after he would read some of these passages aloud, certain members of the Inklings um, actually requested, you know, they said, you know, I really like this, I, I want to reflect on this some more, could I actually borrow uh, the manuscript, your handwritten manuscript of this chapter, and take it home with me, and you know, make some notes on it, and, and Tolkien allowed them uh, to do that when they asked for it. So, these guys, uh, they weren't just giving sort of off-the-cuff responses, uh, you know, first impressions to Tolkien's readings. They actually did think deeply about the things he was saying, and uh, they had some serious reflection on these things and, and uh, gave him you know, very substantial feedback in that way. So that probably helped him uh, make The Lord of the Rings even a, a better book than it would have been otherwise. That's probably true. I mean, we don't have a lot of very specific things that we could point to where Tolkien said, oh, I, you know, I changed this passage because of what Barfield said or something like that. But uh, we do have some more general comments by him, particularly with his relationship with, with C.S. Lewis, uh, where Lewis gave him uh, early on, back in, in the 20s, even before the Inklings formed as a group, um, Lewis and Tolkien's friendship predated that, and uh, Lewis was one of the very first people that got to see and read some of Tolkien's um, stories and poems about Middle-earth. I mean, this is, even predates the writing of The Hobbit, when Tolkien was writing some things that uh, eventually got published in The Silmarillion. Uh, Lewis was one of the very first people to see some of those, and uh, some of those poems like uh, The Lay of Luthien, for example, and uh, gave Tolkien some very critical encouragement uh, at that early stage. So maybe if it had not been for C.S. Lewis and uh, the support that he gave to Tolkien, uh, we might never have seen uh, The Lord of the Rings at all, or maybe even The Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah, Tolkien, um, he says on a number of occasions that they, if it wasn't for the encouragement for Lewis, he basically, there wouldn't be any Lord of the Rings, that he would have never... <laughs> never never made it through the long slog and actually gotten it published so mm -hmm. it sounds like he was pretty instrumental yeah, yeah can you tell us how how lewis and tolkien met how the relationship started sure they had uh, both come to oxford about the same time um, the mid-1920s uh, to to lecture and you look at them today and Today, they would probably, in a modern university, they would probably both be teaching in the same department and have a lot of contact with each other because Tolkien was uh, Anglo-Saxon literature, literature of the, the Middle Ages, the, the Norse literature, the sagas, for example. And uh, Lewis was also a specialist in medieval literature, wrote several books on that subject, and also Renaissance literature. But in Oxford in the 1920s, uh, the sorts of literature that they studied were considered different categories. Lewis did more of the, the French romances and some of the um, uh, writings that's more influenced by the Greco-Roman pagan classics, whereas Tolkien specialized more in the northern literature. So they actually didn't have much contact, and they were at Oxford for 
about a year before they even met each other. And they had come together for some kind of faculty meeting where they were arguing over curriculum. It's the same kind of uh, argument that frequently goes on in universities today. I've been <laughs> in several of those sorts of discussions myself. Um, Lewis and Tolkien were actually on opposite sides of an issue over what sorts of courses uh, and curriculum Oxford University undergraduates should be required uh, to go through. Um, Tolkien was one of what were called the, the language faculty, where he really thought that the students should be studying Old English and Middle English and the medieval uh, heritage of English literature, and that basically anything after Chaucer, you know, around 1400, should be, you know, pretty tangential, pretty superficial. They, they shouldn't spend a lot of time discussing that. And uh, hmm. Lewis was what's, uh, what was called at that time one of the literature faculty, arguing that the more modern works, and by modern we're talking you know, Shakespeare, <laughs> John Milton. <laughs> you know, yeah. We don't think of those as very modern authors <laughs> no. today, but in, in the 1920s that was considered the modern literature. Uh, you know, up through the 18th and, and maybe even the 19th century should be given some sort of emphasis at Oxford. And uh, Tolkien didn't have a lot of... Uh, sympathy for that position, but you know Lewis argued it pretty, uh, pretty strongly, and uh, that was at, after that meeting was the first time that Lewis and Tolkien got together and actually had a, a substantial conversation. And they came away from that meeting. Lewis wrote in one of his journals later, you know, "I met this guy Tolkien. Uh, he gave a physical description of him and said you know, he seems like a pretty good guy. Not not much har harm in him. I think he." concluded the entry by saying he only needs a smack or two because he disagreed with <laughs> because because he disagreed with Lewis on this issue but um, after a couple of years they uh, began to uh, have more frequent meetings and more in-depth discussions they they discovered that each one had this love of uh, Norse mythology the northern literature even though that wasn't Lewis's academic specialty as a boy he had read some of those stories about um, Odin and Thor and, and Balder and some of those Norse gods and had, had really inspired him as, as a child. And so he and Tolkien had that thing in common. They spent many hours uh, talking about the uh, Norse literature. And uh, Tolkien had actually started um, a literary society there at Oxford. It was mostly, it was by invitation only, mostly professors. Um, and it was called the Colbiters. And the purpose of this society was to read through uh, the Norse literature and the Icelandic sagas. And uh, this, is, this is literature that gets hardly any mention in typical college curriculum today. Uh, I've, I teach um, the undergraduate surveys in the humanities, which are supposed to you know, give you the big sweep of Western civilization. And those Icelandic sagas do not even... They don't even get mentioned in most of the textbooks, but this was wow. a, a pretty um, seen as a pretty substantial uh, body of literature. Uh, if you want to, I found a, a website that has a lot of these sagas online. It's an interesting site where you can read it either in English or in modern Icelandic or or in the original Old Norse. Uh, which if, it's interesting just to take a, a look and see what kind of literature Tolkien was very comfortable with. If you go to uh, www.saga db s-a-g-a-d-b dot org you'll see uh, they have a lot of these uh, sagas produced in various translations and if you look at the old Norse I mean, it looks like complete gobbledygook to me 
But uh, Tolkien was fluent in this. He, he was very familiar with it, very comfortable, and several of the other members of the Oxford faculty had some familiarity with this language. So Tolkien ho hosted this society, the Colbiters, to read through these sagas together. And they would mm. um, read it in the original uh, passages of it, and then they would each you know, translate a page of it or so in these meetings. And wow. Lewis, uh, Lewis was not fluent in Old Norse at all. He had never studied it. He was really a, an enthusiastic beginner, but he loved the stories. And so he was eventually invited to these meetings and sort of fumbled his way through trying to translate some of these passages with Tolkien's help. And uh, they took this very seriously. There's actually a story about somebody wrote in their journal that at one of these meetings, there was a, a member of the group who was uh, trying to translate a passage and he was using a cheat sheet uh, of grammar under, he was holding oh, it no. under, the, un, under the table <laughs> so that the other members couldn't see it. And they caught him, and that guy was basically kicked out of the society. They oh, didn't invite him back to any future meetings. So, so they, they took this very seriously. I guess so. <laughs> and this, uh, this meeting, uh, this society, the Colbiters, met for several years it, um, from, say, 19. 27, 28, up into the mid-30s, and by that time they basically worked their way through all of the sagas and they disbanded at that point. But that was a typical thing at Oxford in those days, to have these sort of informal literary societies, and uh, when Lewis started up the Inklings in the 30s, it was sort of in the same spirit. Um, okay. The friendship between Tolkien and Lewis sort of deepened after that, and uh, it's, it's fairly well known if you read a lot about Tolkien or Lewis, how uh, Tolkien was very influential in uh, converting Lewis to Christianity. Uh, Lewis had been an atheist in his youth and by the late 20s had sort of come around to some vague sense of he believed there was a God but had not really uh, accepted the teachings of Christianity. And uh, Tolkien and one or two others had some very long discussions with him about the idea of uh, mythology because Lewis thought, you know, this is these stories from the Bible are just myths like the Greek myths or, or whatever. And uh, Tolkien was able to persuade him that uh, because of the nature of mythology, uh, going back sort of to Barfield's work, that uh, myths are telling us something true. Uh, and Tolkien's view of this is that whenever these ancient pagan people you know, told their myths, they're actually getting a, a little glimpse of the truth of the world that, that God had created. But mm -hmm. uh, in Tolkien's view, um, the New Testament, the Gospels, the story of Jesus, it is a myth, but it is a myth whose author is God. And that makes it different from the other myths. That makes this myth uh, completely true. And uh, Eventually, he was able to um, persuade Lewis of this, and uh, Lewis, there's this, it took him a while to come around to this position, but there's this anecdote, this famous passage from Lewis's writings where he said one day he got into the sidecar of a motorcycle, somebody else was driving the motorcycle, and at the beginning of the motorcycle trip, he was not a Christian. At the end of the motorcycle trip, he was. He finally decided that. <laughs> wow. Uh, that yes, the, all this uh, is true about uh, this, the gospel story, and so uh, he became a member of the Church of England and uh, remained there until uh, his death in the 60s. So uh, 
that's an example of Tolkien's influence on Lewis. You know, we think of mm -hmm. Lewis today as this great Christian apologist and writing things like the Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity and the Chronicles mm -hmm. of Narnia that have all these Christian yep. messages. And if it had not been for Tolkien, maybe none of those books would have ever been written. Well, and the Screwtape Letters is actually dedicated to, to Tolkien, isn't it? Uh, I don't remember for sure. Uh, it yeah, may be. I think but. it is. Yeah, I think it is. But, uh, and uh, Tolkien wrote a poem also, uh, Mytho... Mytho uh, I have a hard time pronouncing it. Mythopoeia? <laughs> Mythopoeia, I think, is Mythopoeia, how that's it's pronounced. It. And isn't that sort of uh, goes over his conversation, his famous conversation with, with Lewis, um, where he was uh, trying to convince Lewis of the, um, the, the truth of, of the Christian myth? Huh. Yeah, and looking at that interplay between uh, you know mythology and truth, and you know how much of it is is, is fiction, how much of it is really telling something true. Um, that's you know Tolkien was really interested in that whole um, field of, of study you know, throughout his life, or at least uh, from the time that he read uh, Barfield's book Poetic Diction in the early twenties. So uh, we have. Uh, may be familiar with uh, Tolkien's essay on fairy stories where he explores mm -hmm. a lot of that as well. And one of the really interesting things about that, that essay is that as he goes through talking about fairy stories, he, he makes a point of refusing to say that fairy stories are just make-believe. That uh, these, these stories about the land of fairy and these uh, you know, elves or other creatures that populate these stories, uh, he will not say that it's all just a bunch of made-up stuff. Uh, he always holds out the possibility that there's truth in these things. Mm -hmm. So how did uh, uh, Lewis and Tolkien's relationship change through their lives? Because they, they were very good friends um, through the 30s, but then it seems like they, they sort of grew apart um, yeah, the, after a time. They did... Uh, get, they always remained friends. They always had a cordial relationship, but there was a little more distance uh, in their relationship. Um, there are a couple of things that, that led to that in the 40s and 50s. Uh, first of all was uh, Charles Williams coming to Oxford. And as I mentioned earlier, Tolkien was not a big fan of Williams's writing, but uh, Lewis was. He reacted to uh, Williams's novels that had been published in the 30s uh, very enthusiastically, and when Williams moved to Oxford in, in around 1940, Lewis immediately uh, you know, struck up a relationship with him, invited him to become part of the Inklings, and uh, Tolkien thought that Williams had maybe too much of an influence on Lewis, and that it was wasn't a completely healthy thing, and so. Uh, you know, Lewis was wanting to hang out with Williams a lot, and although Tolkien did spend uh, time with uh, Lewis and Williams together, some of the intimacy of uh, his relationship with Lewis uh, ebbed a little in the 40s because Lewis had become really bosom friends with, uh, with Williams. And then uh, in later years, of course in the 50s, uh, Lewis took a position at Cambridge University and so geographically, he was not there all the time as he had been uh, in earlier decades. He did travel to Oxford every week, and they continued to have these meetings uh, in the Eagle and Child pub. But uh, again, the intimacy 
they weren't able to have the same level as, as they had back in the 20s and 30s. And then the final thing was, as uh, if you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands, um, that starring Anthony Hopkins, where Hopkins plays uh, C.S. Lewis, um, Lewis married late in life to um, a woman who was a, a divorcee from uh, America, and uh, Joy Gresham was her name, and uh, Lewis disapproved of that relationship as well. Uh, he thought that, uh, again, that this was not a completely healthy thing, although it seemed to bring Lewis uh, a great deal of happiness. Uh, Tolkien uh, wasn't very uh, sympathetic to it, and so that also uh, sort of muted some of the, uh, the friendship. But they never had a falling out. They, they always remained on very cordial terms with each other and considered each other friends uh, up until uh, Lewis's death in the early 60s. But the, the real, I guess what we might call the sweet spot of the relationship was there uh, from the late 20s up until about 1940. And that was a very important time for both of them, of course. Um, Lewis was one of the first people to read The Hobbit. I think he read it in manuscript form as early as 1933. Uh, wasn't published until 1937. Uh, and then that's also the period when Lewis is writing his uh, science fiction trilogy, uh, the books um, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, um, which have a lot of um, Christian themes in them that he would have picked up partially through his writing, uh, his conversations with Tolkien. And so the, the uh, very mutually beneficial uh, friendship between the two of them that I think had lifelong repercussions for them both. Um, also, Tolkien wasn't particularly thrilled with uh, Lewis's uh, brand of Christianity either, was he? Because he was a pretty staunch Catholic. Yes. Um, there were several things about Lewis that Tolkien was critical of. Um, he, uh, of course, would have... Uh, preferred Lewis to uh, convert to Roman Catholicism, uh, and Lewis never did. He held up. You know, there, there are some uh, Roman Catholic writers today who um, like to think that uh, if Lewis had lived maybe another five years or so, that he would ultimately have converted to Catholicism. They, they think they detect certain tendencies in his writings <laughs> near, the, near the end that show that he was sort of moving in that direction. I mean, it's, it's impossible to say whether that would have happened or not, but... Um, Maybe it's just wishful thinking on the part of <laughs> certain, yeah. certain Catholics. I, I Everybody know. wants him on their team. <laughs> That's yeah. right. It, it really is remarkable how Lewis is, is claimed by pretty much every stripe of uh, you know, professing Christian. I mean, everybody seems to love um, almost everything that he wrote. Uh, although uh, Tolkien himself was not a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he thought that they were too allegorical. Allegory was not something that uh, Tolkien was very fond of. And so there were certain stylistic things about the writing, I think partially because uh, Lewis was much more influenced by the Renaissance literature and some of the uh, neoclassical writing of the 18th century, for example. And that was... You know, again, in Tolkien's mind, that was just much too modern. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of um, things that uh, certain uh, efforts to revive uh, Greek and Roman stylistic things, which Tolkien was never really a big fan of. Um, he thought that it was uh, frippery for the most part. That didn't really add much to uh, to the um, to the story that you're trying to tell. In fact, there's mm -hmm. 
uh, one or two times early on when uh, Lewis was commenting on some of Tolkien's early poems, uh, some of these things that made it into the Silmarillion eventually, uh, Lewis, would, trying to be helpful, would suggest certain revisions to particular lines or passages, and he would rewrite them for Tolkien and say, what do you think of this? And Tolkien, um, uh, we have some of the handwritten comments that he made you know, where he would say things like, oh, he would underline a passage that Lewis wrote and, and write in the margin, frightful 18th century or something like that. <laughs> uh, because again, you know, any, anything past Chaucer was uh, just not... Uh, up Tolkien's alley. So they did have these differences in terms of uh, the kinds of writing that they uh, would produce and what they thought was good stylistically. Um, I think most scholars today would say that uh, Tolkien was probably a better poet than Lewis was. Both of them uh, wrote poetry, and of course a lot of Tolkien's poems show up in different passages in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. Um, Lewis also tried his hand at poetry, but I think the consensus is pretty much that Lewis, because he had these eclectic influences from different periods of uh, history, that he would slap all these different kinds of techniques into the same poem, and it wound up just not really having uh, a, a, a unity or a, you know, mm -hmm. a central theme or strength that, uh, that Tolkien's writing did, even though Tolkien's poetry was much plainer and, and unadorned. So... Certainly there were those kinds of differences there, but I think in terms of just the sheer enthusiasm that Lewis brought to the conversations and, and the feedback that he gave Tolkien on his writing, that's probably where the biggest influence came. Um, do you have suggestions if people want to learn more about the Inklings or, and about uh, Lewis and Tolkien's friendship? Um, what are some good uh, sources or books or places to go um, um, I certainly, I personally would suggest Tolkien's letters. I mean, I just, I love reading those things. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's such a prolific letter writer, but uh, um, what do you, what do you think? Uh, that would be a, a very good choice. Uh, if, if you want to read a sort of um, a critical or scholarly uh, introduction to the Inklings, the, the classic work, uh, which was published in the late 70s, but has uh, been, I, I think it's, it, it may be out of print, but you could probably find it at your library or, or find a used copy of it somewhere. Uh, it's called simply The Inklings, and the um, author's name is Humphrey Carpenter. C -A -R -P -N -T -E -R. I, I believe, yeah, I, I think that is still in print, actually. Yeah, it's, it's been so, through a couple of yeah. editions. There's also a, a book that was published just in the last year or two, which is not, I mean, it does have information about the Inklings, but it's sort of a, a visual, sort of a photographic essay that is called uh, The Inklings of Oxford. Hmm. And uh, that was just published uh, last year, actually, 2009. And the author is Harry Lee Poe, P-O-E. And there's a lot of great photographs in here uh, showing different, um, excuse me, different uh, places in Oxford that uh, the buildings where they would have um, uh, would have visited uh, buildings on the Oxford campus, the different colleges, uh, the various uh, houses that where some of these guys lived, uh, a, a lot of great uh, visual data to sort of get you into the uh, feel of, of the world that these guys were living in. 
and uh, some of the spirit. There's photographs of the Eagle and Child Pub, for example, uh, mm. some of the lecture halls. So that, that's a really um, useful one as well. Huh. Uh, there is also. Um, and I have not had a chance to read this yet. I just got it in the mail this week. Um, the, the folks at uh, Casual Stroll of Mordor, um, American Golden Star, saw this online, and they sent me a link to it, recommended it to me, and I just picked it up. It's a new novel that is uh, set in the 1940s, and you have a, a character who interacts with the members of the Inklings. Huh. Uh, it's called Looking for the King. The author is uh, David Downing, D-O-W-N-I-N-G, and uh, you can find this on Amazon. The main character is a guy who is looking for evidence about um, historical evidence for King Arthur. So you know that's very much up the uh, Charles Williams sort of uh, alley. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lewis and Tolkien and Williams are, are characters in these novels. And I'm looking forward to reading this. I've, it's been getting a lot of really good press, a lot of accolades yeah. from various I, scholars. I, I actually read that, and it's very good. It's, it's okay, a very good, good book. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, he wow. does a great job. Yes, yeah, he does a great job. And he incorporates a lot of, uh, a lot of semi-quotes from from the inklings that are from their letters and other writings, but he does it in such a way that it really brings them to life. So I, I recommend it. It's a, it's a good book. And there's a Kindle edition. I, re- I read it on my Kindle. So Nice. So uh, I have a controversial question for you now. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings? Which do you prefer? <laughs> well, I have to say I've, I've loved both series uh, since I was uh, a child. I think I read The Hobbit at the first time, uh, for the first time at age six, and started reading The Chronicles of Narnia about the same time. Um, I would say just from a literary perspective I'd have to go with Lord of the Rings. I think it's it's richer thematically um, in, in terms of uh, the depth of what Tolkien does, and simply the fact that he created this you know, enormous backstory and mythology for the world of Middle-earth. Uh, one of the things that a lot of the critics said about The Lord of the Rings when it first came out, you know, a lot of critics t- did not like it. They thought that Tolkien was this pre-modern Neanderthal throwback because of the <laughs> themes that he was dealing with. Um, you know, Modern critics are, are that way sometimes. But they did concede, most of them, that you really do get the impression of depth when you read The Lord of the Rings because of all the allusions and references to things that happened thousands of years ago that are just hinted at in the books. And, of course, Tolkien had been working on these things for decades, and they Mm -hmm. had never been published. A lot of this stuff didn't show up until the 70s in print uh, in the Silmarillion. And so you get that... uh, those glimpses of this, this vast uh, reality when you read The Lord of the Rings that you don't necessarily get with Narnia. Mm. Uh, the Narnia stories are, are great, and you know, the audience for Narnia is children, although there are a lot of really important ideals, uh, ideas in Narnia that adults can reflect on profitably. Uh, still, it's told on a level that's sort of like The Hobbit, you know, where children can get it and understand the story and uh, 
Tolkien is clearly writing for an adult audience, and so I say at this point in my life, I, I have to say I would prefer to sit down and uh, read a passage out of The Lord of the Rings to Narnia, although it is, uh, it, it is very difficult to choose yeah. between them. Although if you, were, if you were on a Lewis podcast, you'd probably say Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might, uh, I might say one of Lewis's other books that is, you know, like the screw tape letters. I mean, that is very incisive and, and penetrating analysis of human nature that, you know, is right up there with anything that Tolkien ever does, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some of Lewis's, um, his, his final novel, for example, Till We Have Faces, which is a retelling of um, the, the Greco-Roman myth of uh, Cupid and Psyche. I mean, that's some very deep... Uh, stuff that's going on in some of those books. Um, I, I personally love uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, which uh, Lewis wrote in the 30s, shortly after he converted to Christianity. It's, a, it's an allegorical, sort of in the same vein as The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, mm-hmm. the, hmm. the great book of the 17th century, where he basically traces his journey through all these different philosophies and, and ways of looking at the world before he finally winds up at Christianity. And he does it in an allegorical form. It's, it's a very engaging reading. And so I, I think that you know, Lewis is, uh, certainly deserves to be read by, by just about everybody. If, if you're a professing Christian, certainly you would want to uh, read a lot of what Lewis has to say. But even, uh, even those who are uh, not Christians can still read uh, Lewis and get a lot out of him, I think. How about mm-hmm. um, just... I'm taking us off track a bit, but what about the uh, the space trilogy? I haven't read that yet, but that sounds very interesting. And and as I understand it, the main character is based on Tolkien, right? Yes, the uh, main character, uh, whose name is Ransom, is a uh, philologist, a professor, <laughs> and it's it's pretty clear that he's modeling this on Tolkien in some respects. Uh, but you have, uh, in this trilogy, this character... Um, in the first novel, he travels to Mars. In the second novel, he travels to Venus. And then the third novel, uh, the action takes place completely on Earth. But uh, he was writing this in the late 30s and early 40s. Of course, there had been no trip to the moon at that point. There had been no satellite to orbit the Earth or anything like that. So uh, he comes up with this very interesting kind of schematic on how he maps the solar system. And um, again, places this within a sort of Christian framework where Mm. um, God has created these various worlds. Um, Each world is populated by by different species that are sentient, that have uh, a certain purpose, and they live out that purpose. And uh, the only world that screwed up was Earth. <laughs> the, the, other, the other worlds never had a fall, like you read about with Adam and even the serpent in the book of Genesis. Uh, in, it's, it's interesting that when he travels to these other worlds, these other worlds have um, sort of like guardian angels or guardian spirits that oversee them. And they say, yes, uh, all the, the spirits from the other planets, we all communicate with each other but we don't communicate with Earth because Earth screwed up, and we call that one the silent planet because uh, basically they never say the, the name Satan, but that's the Im- impression that you get. Satan has control of that planet. Huh. Mm. Um, mm. I think uh, the second book of that series, uh, which is called Paralandra, uh, Lewis actually said was his favorite book of all the ones that he wrote. And you have this essentially an, an imaginary what would it be like 
what, what, would the, what would our world have been like if Adam and Eve had not sinned? And that's basically mm. what you have. Um, Ransom travels to Venus under the direction of these um, angelic uh, beings. They, they send him there, and his job is to uh, prevent the Satan character from, uh, from tempting or from corrupting the first uh, man and woman there on that planet. Uh-huh. So he, he winds up having to have all of these. Uh, there's, there's a lot of kind of uh, theological discussion, some of the dialogue, but it is uh, very engaging. And uh, by the end of it, um, Ransom ultimately has to get into basically a duel to the death with this uh, other character who represents the satanic force uh, because uh, Lewis says, you know, reason, logic, persuasion will only take you so far. And if the other party is still hell bent on, on evil, then sometimes you have to uh, use force to try to stop that. So they have this duel mm-hmm. to the death essentially. And um, he comes out on top and uh, the world is saved basically. So you have this, um, closing scene where it's sort of like in the book of Genesis where Adam names all the animals and you have a congregating of all the different species on, on the planet and but it's, it's a happy ending unlike uh, where you see you know they, they fall into temptation and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and, and Lewis thought that um, you know, maybe that's what our world could have been like if, if you hadn't had the fall of man as, as told in the book of Genesis so uh, very uh, interesting uh, hypothetical what if kinds of stories and um, the the last now, one in the now series, those books are um, those books are a bit hard to find though at least I our, my library doesn't have them and I, I don't know if they're even in print anymore but th- there are actually uh, recent editions of them they've come back into print and are I there? found them okay. all last year at a at a books a million so uh, you can oh, get great. them all okay. for a decent price, and uh, I'm actually going to use um, the first book. is only about 150 pages. It's pretty short, Out of the Silent Planet, and I'm actually going mm-hmm. to use that one in this uh, course that I'm teaching on Lewis uh, this coming spring. The one that's most highly regarded uh, by most scholars is the last one, um, which is That Hideous Strength, uh, which is often seen as a sort of commentary on uh, totalitarianism. It was written in the 40s, so of course you've got World War II going on and all the concern about um, you know, the Cold War heating up and totalitarianism in Germany and Russia. And you have uh, these characters who apparently under some sort of, uh, again, a kind of satanic supernatural influence are trying to take um, Britain in that direction. And you have a lot of, um, again, King Arthur mythology being worked into that. That book is probably the one where you see most mm-hmm. clearly the influence of Charles Williams on Lewis's writing, and Lewis dedicated that yeah. book to Williams. But in the now, course of the plot, the uh, the characters actually dig up Merlin. <laughs> you know, Merlin comes back oh. to help them uh, save the day. You know, near the end of the story. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the one Tolkien didn't like, isn't it? The third one. I think I that's remember correct. him. Uh, Again, because that. he thought it was <laughs> it was too influenced by Williams. Although he was very. When he says, uh, a lot of places when he says he didn't like Lewis's stuff, he's very charitable. He he's describes it as, it's outside my area of sympathy. So, he never says it's bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, even yeah. some of those passages from Tolkien's letters, I mean, they come from pretty late in his life, in, in, in the 60s. And 
uh, you know, 20 years or so after the fact. And so, you know, Tolkien is looking back over, you know, 20 years to try to recall some of these things. And it's, um, you know, you have to use some, some critical judgment there on, on how much <laughs> Tolkien's how much writing is colored at that point by, by the fact that, yeah, his, his friendship with Lewis has cooled a little bit by that point. This is actually after Lewis's death that he wrote some of these things. But um, indications at the time were that, as I said, apparently he did spend quite a bit of time with Williams and got along with him just fine and uh, had feedback from him. So uh, I, th- I think the, the line that you just quoted about it being outside his area of sympathy where he recognized that there may be some value to this. It just wasn't something that conformed to his taste. Well, it's been great talking to you today. We can say sure. we can wave goodbye to the little rabbit in the corner of the room here. I don't know if if you've ever noticed, but in the in the corner of this room, in uh, in the bird and baby, there's a little rabbit, and um, in the eagle and child in Oxford, the room there where the Inklings met was called the rabbit room. Ah. So if you're ever wondering why there's why there's a little rabbit in the corner of this room in in uh, in in Mickle delving here. Uh, because it's, it's the rabbit. I will room, say so. to the listeners, uh, if, if you ever have a chance uh, to go to Oxford, it's a wonderful town. It still has a lot of that, uh, particularly in, in the historic center where the, a lot of the colleges are, great areas to walk around. And the Eagle and Child is a great place to go and, uh, and have a meal. There's, uh, there's two main rooms in it. There's a front room that has a lot of photographs on the walls and uh, various signed letters and manuscripts of um, uh, mem- various members of the Inklings. So you see pictures of Lewis and Tolkien uh, there, and you can actually eat a meal sitting on, at those tables, sitting underneath those photographs. Um, I have read some conflicting things as to what room they actually met in most of the time. Uh, some people, I've read one or two people that have said that they actually met in the back room more often, but but either way, uh, it's it's a great place to go. A lot of atmosphere, a lot of character, and it's a. Um, I'd highly recommend it to anybody who ever has a chance to go to Oxford. Cool. Yeah, or you can just come here to Mickle Delving and uh, <laughs> go to the Bird and Baby. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of The Secrets of Middle-Earth. We hope you enjoyed the interview of Dave and Laura with our special guest of today, Pungo. You can find more episodes of this podcast on our website. Just go to middleearth.sqpn.com. And you can also find us in iTunes. Just look for The Secrets of Middle-Earth. And if you are in iTunes and you have a moment, uh, leave us a review or rate the show. That will help other people find this podcast series as well. Of course, we always welcome your feedback on these episodes. Just uh, email us, tolkien at sqpn.com. And, uh, well, I guess that wraps it up. Oh! One final thing, we are also on Twitter and on Facebook, and our Twitter account is uh, SQPN Tolkien, and on Facebook you can just look for Secrets of Middle-Earth. See you next time here on The Secrets of Middle-Earth, and until then, may the hair on your toes grow ever longer. I regret to announce this is the end. I'm going now. I bid you all a very fond farewell. Farewell.